Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Hey, welcome to the episode of the podcast where we delve into the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. All the A's. Um, Look, I have to admit, I knew next to nothing about these places before I started research for this episode, not even where they are geographically. I'd assumed they were in Eastern Europe along with those other former Soviet satellites, but not so, Phil. Uh, No, indeed. No, they're in Northern Europe, below the Scandinavian nations with Russia to the east and Poland in the south. Strictly speaking, Germany and Poland are also Baltic states because they have large sea you know, borders with the Baltic. But historically, Estonia in the north, Latvia in the middle, and Lithuania in the south have been lumped together. Estonia and Latvia became wealthy nations in the past because their ports in Tallinn and Riga remain mostly ice-free in winter, so they get trade access across the Baltic. And in medieval times, Lithuania had a huge empire that stretched as far as the Black Sea and out across to Moscow. But of course, with such strong neighbours around them, they've been a punching bag in the rise (laughs) and fall of empires. For the past couple of hundred years, they've been largely closed to the rest of the world because of occupation and oppression by the Russian Tsars, then the Soviets, Joseph Stalin, then Hitler's uh, Nazis, and then Joe Stalin again at the end. Gone back for another go. Yeah, modern Europeans know a little about them, but mostly because Tallinn and Riga became popular with stag parties back in the 80s. Oh, and it's those things which have conspired to keep the Baltics off the travel radar. They do have a bit of a reputation for Soviet grimness, grimness, a cheap drinking spot for bucks parties and women dancing in peasant dresses. I know, yeah, the traditional dress is very popular, yeah. That's all true, but as we're about to learn, there's a lot about these three separate nations, which make them an ideal location for the independent adventure traveller. Yeah, but we will touch on that dark side when we chat with Jessie about the KGB Museum. Kate will share five things she wishes she knew before going to Latvia with her partner Mark. Award-winning travel writer Rob McFarlane joins us to chat about the holiday blues. Oh, the festive season is over, I know you do. But let's kick off with Amy, who had a date with the devil in Lithuania. So one thing I've learned about you is that wherever you travel, you like to do it on a bike. So why did you have a date with the devil in Lithuania on a bike? I don't know. I mean, (laughs) it just happened, can I say? Doesn't that always go with dates? It kind of just happens. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I I like bikes. Uh, I think cycling is a really good way to see places it's more it's slower much slower you know than driving obviously um but a little bit faster than walking so you can it's kind of a midway for me and it just happens that the devil was there so so for those listening let's explain who the devil is well so in lithuania there is a place called um the coronia spit which is essentially a little Ma- uh, well, a little, um, a massive sandbank that uh, runs along the coast of Lithuania. And on there, there's always been this um, legend of a giant, giant um, lady who protected the coast by pouring sand over this spit. And of course, with all these legends, there's always, always the bad people. So there's witches that you know, roam the forest of Lithuania. And all, as all dark creatures go, the devil's apparently their boss. So what they've created is this. A forest of legends, you could say, or forest of folklore, where uh, local artists have carved out wooden sculptures um, that 
tells the stories of these folklore. So it's not just a folklore of this particular giantess, but it's also, you know, all the witches that live there and all these other stories to do with the land um, surrounding it. And they, for some reason, included Lucifer, who is a devil, um, of course, and for those who didn't know, and also his gate to hell. So he's pretty much sitting there in front of his gate, and apparently if you go and kiss him, you become, you could potentially win the witch's beauty contest. So why not? <laughs> <laughs> so you kissed Lucifer. How do you know that you've won? I mean, this is all folklore. How do you I know don't. you've won the witch's beauty contest? I don't know. I'm still waiting for the paparazzi to come through and, you know, to... <laughs> That particular area, the Coronian Spit, that's... That's UNESCO World Heritage. Is that based on the fact that it's full of this folklore or because of the um, the sand itself or the sculptures that the artists have done? Uh, no, so the UNESCO World Heritage status have nothing to do with the folklores. Um, the UNESCO Heritage status has to do with the actual nature setting of the sandbank. So it's, it's actually quite a... Um, so for a sandbank to stretch this long... Um, it's a natural phenomenon and they want it to protect it. And what it does is this sandbank has various different sand qualities, which um, unfortunately to my little mind, I can't really grasp the difference between it's a grey sand and a white sand. And, you know, there's also um, brown sand and there's apparently five shades of sand, which um, I, I'm, I'm sure a geologist will be happy to explain it to all of us one day. Um, but this unique ecosystem then supports a lot of the local wildlife which um, are a lot different to the other wildlife that we can see so you know we're talking about little creatures that you normally wouldn't you know expect to live in sand and also the vegetation that this, it, that um, can grow on the sand holds the sand together and essentially protects the coast of Lithuania from more sand being entered into their mainland so it is actually this sand bank is in fact protecting the coast of Lithuania whether that's the work of the giantess or, you know, actually just nature doing its job, um, it's for many to decide. How did you find yourself there then, um, you know, riding a bike? You end up on a giant sandbank. Um, I, so because I'm a cyclist and a lot of my holidays are going to be, you know, the first thing I think about is can I cycle there? And um, so I, I naturally look at all these cycle routes that are accessible and, you know, that I can do without too much effort, obviously. Along the Baltic co uh, the Balkan coast, the Baltic coast, um, it's quite flat and places like, so we're talking about Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, it's joined by an entire route of this Eurovelo um, cycling route. Um, and it just happened that, I live in London at the moment, so I saw there was a there was um, they were starting a direct flight from uh, London to Palanga, which is the closest airport to Klaipeda, and um, and it was a place of it was a place I've never been to. So I thought, hey, why not? I'll, I'll go and have a look what's there and um, hire a bike and see if I like it. And if I do, I might go back. And it's one of those places that you don't really. You know, you, it's not like Paris or, you know, it's not really a bucket list place. It, it's one of those places you just have to stumble upon. And it just happens that I was looking at various different cycling routes and stumbled upon this one. They're the best places, though, those sort of what we call off the beaten track. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, you don't, you go there without an expectation. Um, you know, you're not, I, I mean, obviously, you know, people go, oh, I want to go to Rome and Paris. I want to do, you know, I want to see this 
you know, great things. It's, this is more like, oh, I'll just go and see what's there. You know, it's not, yeah. And I, I think I think the best experiences I come come out of these kind of experiences um, or come out of these trips is because you learn things that you wouldn't normally learn or you experience things that you normally wouldn't even expect to be there. So, no, it's, it's great. Thanks, Amy. And as with everything and everyone you hear in the episode, more information, stories, etc., are available in show notes. Uh, speaking of learning things, Kate and her partner, partner Mark join us now to tell us about the five things she wishes she knew before going to Latvia. Thanks for having us again. Always a pleasure. Now, did Mark help you with this particular article? Uh, look, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> because he's there listening. And there was actually, we were going to write about six things, was the fact that I could actually find where Latvia was. That was number six. Where is it? Yeah, well, that's a point. I mean, it's sort of, it's not a huge place for a start, so it is a little bit hard to pinpoint it's on the map. It's not where I thought it was. I know. Is that, is that right? Mm, it's uh. not. So, it's, so, Mark, you tell, what have you learned? Where is it? <laughs> it's... It's in Northern Europe. It's nestled between Estonia, Lithuania, Lithuania. and it's sort of basically the the fence to uh, to Russia. Yeah. See, I thought it was fur- further down, like come down toward Croatia. That's where I thought it was. How embarrassing Wait is that? Minute. Wait, wait a minute. Don't, Croatia. Don't. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> don't. Can we edit that? Bit? <laughs> whole continent away. I know who I was. I know. Someone, someone's very lost. I Let's don't know. Kate, Kate, yeah. Kate said to me, she said, Let's go to Nicaragua. And I said, I've never been to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we like to think we're worldly, but occasionally we get it wrong. So Kate, what what five things did you wish you knew before you and Mark got there <laughs> to Latvia? Well I, hopefully it was a pleasant surprise, right? Yeah, you'd hope so. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it was. Look, I tell you what, one thing we were really, really surprised about um about Latvia was how beautiful it is. You know, we just I'm gonna be honest, we knew nothing about it before we went. Um, we were actually talking this morning about it. We were trying to work out why we went. <laughs> we couldn't work out why we went. Um, but when we got there, we we were really, really surprised. I mean, it was just one of those situations where you're driving from the airport and you sort of go, wow, this is beautiful, you know, and we weren't expecting it. No, we were expecting, expecting more R- Russian, Soviet Union style. Yeah, a you know. A little bit drab. But it wasn't. A lot like what you see in some Eastern European countries. But, you know, beautiful cities, just stunning, and the countryside. Is it all like birch trees and stuff like that? It's kind of, well, I suppose because it is so close to Scandinavia, but it is really a lot like what we've seen in Scandinavia, those beautiful wooded forests, a lot like what we saw in Russia as well, you know, really dense forests, um, just, you know, gorgeous beaches, and the forest, when you see the greens of the forest, it's as though they've been oversaturated. It's that green. Wow. Yeah. Put, put through a filter almost. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Instagram business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But hang on. I, you talk about beaches. You just mentioned beaches then. I wasn't expecting, you know, there to be decent beaches in Latvia. No, and it's something that, um, I mean, we've found this in other places as well, um, that you don't, you just don't think about that. 
you know, when you say, oh, well, we're going to go to the Baltics, beaches don't come to the forefront of your mind, you know. So that kind of thing is really surprising when you get there and you sort of go, well, okay, the water's a little chilly, especially by our standards, um, but pristine, absolutely pristine. And I suppose you've got, you've got a country or a group of countries that essentially were closed for such a long time that, you know, they're, they're still largely untapped. We mentioned at the the top of the podcast, we sort of asked ourselves a few questions. Why would a, why would a nomad want to go to Latvia? And there are plenty of reasons, but there are some really weird, um, not statistics, but little um, fun facts. Like I didn't realise there's a Latvian link to, to genes. Levi's. Yeah, they were invented Levi's by Strauss. a... No, Levi Strauss was Latvian. You no, know, they were invented by a Latvian tailor but funded by Levi Strauss. Oh, so okay. the, La- the Latvian tailor, he's got nothing out of it. Nothing. And we could have all been wearing Krupnikuses instead of Levi's, I don't know. <laughs> so by the way, Krupn- I'm sorry, I have to confess, <laughs> Krupnikus <laughs> is actually a Lithuanian drink. Oh, okay. It was the only kind of Baltic-sounding word that I remember. <laughs> you guys knew about the genes then, did you? I, funnily enough, I, I knew about that, but I don't, I don't know why I knew that one. I told you. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you another fun fact about Latvia, which um, we found while we were there. Organ transplants came from Latvia. Okay, what's the history behind that? In uh, Riga, there's this really unusual museum there and they have this stuffed dog on display that has another dog grafted onto the back of it and that was the research that um, started organ transplants. <laughs> Why do you ask two dogs? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> See, I, I'm trying to keep a really straight face while I'm telling you this story, but it is actually true. I just, I just saw you throwing a, a bucket of water over them. <laughs> I thought it was two dogs humping. So <laughs> we had to get up really close to go, oh, no, they're actually connected. So, Tim, come on, Kate, what did you learn? What, what's the connection between two dogs in a humping position got to do with organ transplants? Well, you know what? The thing was is that uh, the dog on top didn't have a body. <laughs> okay, this has got really weird now. <laughs> I think you've been drinking that drink. That, yeah, 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 there you go. Too many <laughs> so there you go. There's a fun fact for you to have a look. <laughs> okay. It's true. The, do- the dog on top, it's just like his head and his little paws and they're connected to the neck of the other dog. So, yeah, these, these are really um, unusual things that have been happening in Latvia before any of us sort of thought about going there. Yeah. Wow. Oh, well, and, and just give us a bit about the isolation. So obviously that's a lot to do with, you know, the Soviet era and what have you. And what, an, what kind of an effect being isolated like that has had on the place? What's so good about that now? I think, like, you know, we've spent a lot of time in former communist countries, if you like, Um and I think one thing we noticed about Riga, especially out of all the ones that we've been to, it seems to be a lot more progressive than a lot of other countries that have been closed off for many years, didn't it? It was a lot more, um, perhaps it's the the new generation coming through are really making a charge in making a change, if you like, Um but that was one of the things we noticed, especially as soon as we arrived in Riga, wasn't it? It just seemed to be a lot more progressive and they seemed to have moved forward a lot quicker 
than some other countries that uh, were closed off. Compare it then to Estonia, which you both went to. Yeah, I think the same thing. You know, I think it's a lot more, look, possibly, and I could be reaching, there could be because they've got a close, they're so close to Scandinavia. Um, so there could be that influence there with those Northern European countries. Um, but similar with Estonia, I, I think to some respect, you'd have to put the three Baltic countries in one basket in that way, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. From all of the countries that we've been to that, you know, were essentially closed, you know, due to communism, um, they seem to be the ones that have sort of moved forward a lot faster. All right. Well, you've created a snapshot. If someone was to ask you, hey, Kate, Mark, why should I go to the, the Baltics or to, to Latvia, what would you say? I'd say go in May and go to the, uh, the beer festival. Oh, Okay. <laughs> No, now, now you've got me. Yeah, thought that'd be a winner. Yep. <laughs> well, is this like uh, you know akin to the uh, Oktoberfest thing? Kind of, well, on a much smaller scale and a lot classier. We, we, we <laughs> but that go. wouldn't be we, hard. <laughs> be classier. <laughs> we were so lucky. We 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 rock up to Riga. We don't even know where we are. We're wandering around, and here's the sign says. Beer festival, two euro. Oh. So off we go. And all it is is it's in a big park. It was a beautiful day. And there's these big barbecues. They're doing big skewers of meat and, and seafood. And next to the barbecue is beer. So it went beer, barbecue, beer, barbecue, beer. And at each end were bands or DJs. That was fantastic. But they are oh, an incredible um, selection of, you know, craft beers and things like that, which, you know, again, we kind of weren't expecting. It was it was pretty cool, wasn't it? Yeah, Funny. and it's held in the, the Vermonese Gardens, you know, they're dating back to about the 19th century. How's that for some history? Yeah, um, I, was, I was doubting you as you were saying that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I made it up. But anyway, if you go to Old Town Rigger, the park up the road has the barbecue. There's a beer festival. Follow your, your nose and your tongue. There you go. And, to, and speaking, because you write about the food as well in the article, so you were surprised by that. You're saying lots of good barbecue stuff. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the food's amazing. Absolutely. They've got um, one of the things we really loved in, in Riga um, was the marketplace because it's in a huge uh, Zeppelin hangar. Now, I had to really rack my brain to go Zeppelins, aren't they, those giant balloons? Um, but, yeah, a series of Zeppelin hangers. And in there they've got the just the, you know, usual day-to-day market, but they have all these little stalls and restaurants and things so you can just go and choose fresh fish and, you know, have lunch there. And the food is just outstanding. And oh. then if you're like Kate, you can go and try, and they're quite famous for this, is uh, their rye breads. Okay. Uh, you write about that in the article too, don't you? Oh, I love rye bread. And the darker the better. I was, <laughs> I was in heaven. <laughs> well, you haven't convinced me on the dogs and how, <laughs> and how, how, it, how it's kind of hooks into organ transplant, but you have convinced me on Latvia. Guys, you are such fun to chat to. Thank you so much. Great talking Thanks to you guys. Thanks for having us again. Look, a warning, there will be a pic of that <laughs> dog the guys were talking about in show notes along with links to their vlog Vagrants of the World. Oh, look, I know you laugh but it's actually quite serious, isn't it? It is. And why... Should we put the um, not YouTube the video. video? No. That's horrific. You can go and find that yourself, right people. Um, 
but tell me what how because I'm st- was still trying to struggle on how it deals with organ transplant. But you said it's got s- to well, do with they the need c- to be connecting to, all the yeah. They need to be able to prove that you can connect one entity's veins and circulatory system to another animals or beings yeah. and that the and you need to practice the surgery doing the surgery on something i suppose you can't, well, really, can't really start on people n- normally it's mice but yeah. why not dogs i know but look this is you know you know it's historical as well i'm not Scrim. quite sure you'd be able to get away with it these days oh but it's like a, f- a 1950s b-grade sci-fi movie oh, if anyone's familiar the, with fl- the human the, flyer the remember fly! yeah the <laughs> what news have you got for us? All oh, right. The 92-year-old Queen of England has been travelling to the four corners of her once glorious empire since she was 21. She's visited 120 different countries, many more than once, but it's been revealed in a new book she dislikes air travel. Not quite a fear of travelling, but she says she doesn't enjoy it. Now, as far as I can tell, she travels first class. I wonder what she oh. thinks she... Bung back in cattle class with the rest of us. Oh, eh? we've got something coming up on that too later in the okay. episode. Uh, USA Today travel writer Rick Sini has named what he calls the five travel fails that will ruin your trip or cost you money. Not taking into account possible airport delays. Yeah, especially in the United States, those queues to get through yeah, the TSA true. can, you can, you know, sometimes you need more than three hours to get through those. Failure to weigh your own luggage. Turning up with an overweight bag and having to wear all your clothes or oh, ditch stuff. Or yeah. pay out literally hundreds. Yep. Failure to screen your own luggage. So that's, you know, liquids and the other so-called contraband that you might have got tucked away in there, which is going to get you pulled out of the queue. Same sort of stuff. Failure to monitor gates and terminals. Yes. Oh, I think we've all been guilty of that. Yes. I haven't heard that they've changed gates and terminals yet. And failure to mind your own personal space. That's, you know, when the bare feet get stuck through the gap in the seat from behind you, you know, and you've got somebody's smelly feet sticking in your personal space or... Hey, you know you can buy a sling now? For? For the seat in front of you so that you can put your... You can rest your feet and it doesn't sort of interfere with... It doesn't interfere with the person in front of you. Until they put their seat back Until in... Until they put their... It does and, mention and, that. And your knees go through <laughs> your does, nose. Yeah. Okay, it did mention that. It was a pros and cons article. Oh, oh, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, a survey of American teachers reveals 74% of them believe travelling as a child makes you more successful in life. So if you're thinking of packing away the backpack when you start a family, the good news is you can satisfy your wanderlust and pretend you're doing it for the kids. So <laughs> keep going, all right? Hey, uh, do you take a camera with you when you travel or do you rely on the uh, phone? I used to. I do have a digital um, SLR, but now I just rely on my iPhone. It's good uh, because enough. the DSLR is too big and bulky yeah, to carry absolutely. around. All right. Um, compact travel cameras are making a bit of a comeback. And Nikon has just released its latest version, the Coolpix A1000. Coolpix, I think that's a cheap-sounding name. But anyway, apparently they're good cameras. Look, camera specs don't mean much to me, but it does have a 35 times optical zoom and a 3-inch touch screen that folds out so you can get a nice clear view of what you're taking a photo of. Uh, So it's easy to use and you get a little bit more control uh, over, you know, ISO and all that sort of stuff so you can turn up some truly Instagram-worthy photographs that will make all your friends jealous. Yeah, all right. So not only did I not know where the Baltics were, I don't even know what ISO is, which is why none of them are pics on my digital SLR come out any good. (laughs) 
the depth of your troubles. <laughs> yeah, I know. Is that it? That's it. I'm done. Awesome. Well, we are obviously back into the swing of things with the festive season behind us, and it's mm. often tough and depressing when it, when reality hits. <laughs> like, no, you've been struggling. I had travel writer Rob McFarlane speaking about the holiday blues on another travel podcast called Flight of Fancy and decided we needed to chat. Rob, are the holiday blues a real thing? Absolutely. Um, I think if you think about travel and uh, and holidays, it's something that you spend a lot of time planning and researching, and you spend a lot of time looking forward to it. You can spend months and months sort of anticipating this trip, and so uh, and I think a lot of a lot of the appreciation of travel is that anticipation before you go somewhere, and then you go, and then you come back, and then it's it's all over, and you're you're broke, and you're you're back to your normal routine, and you're back to work. So. Uh, it's something that I experience multiple times a year. Yeah, well, we'll get to exactly how you live, but yesterday was the first time in the office for Phil and I. Phil, you were only gone for two weeks, but you'd forgotten how everything worked. Yeah, yeah, I'm reconnecting all those neurons, which buttons to push on this podcast panel we got here. But the greatest thing, of course, was I forgot all my passwords. <laughs> I couldn't get into anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to get I had to get the IT guy down to come and help me reset everything. But I got going again. But it is it's it's I mean it's neural pathways, isn't it, Rob? Absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, on all sorts of levels, isn't it? It's sort of readjusting to new routines, and you have this sort of delicious freedom when you're traveling, and you don't have to be places at certain times, and you can your days sort of unfold somewhat spontaneously. And so you leave that and you go back to this very rigid sort of structured life that you have um, back at home. And it's, it's tough. It's tough readjusting. It's weird, though, with um, seasonal affective disorder or SAD, that's actually been psychologically diagnosed. But the holiday blues is yet to be. At this point, it's just something that's anecdotal. Oh, totally. And I think, I mean, as someone who grew up in the UK, who I think was permanently affected by SAD for the first sort of 28 years of my life, I, um, I can totally appreciate that. And one of the big reasons that I moved to Australia was just for sunshine and being able to own more than two pairs of shorts and all the things that sort of put a smile on your face when you get up in the morning. But I think uh, the exact same thing happens with travel. When you come back from a trip, you've often been somewhere nice and tropical and you come back and it's just the drudgery of everyday uh, life. Um, but it's, it's also really, I'm, I'm sure we'll get onto this, but I think it's totally necessary. You absolutely need those those breaks and those um, doses of normality so that you then appreciate the next, the next bit of travel that you do. And when I, find, when I do trips in very quick succession, then I often don't enjoy them as much as if I've had a little bit of a break and I've had a bit of normality and then I get that excitement when I, when I head back to the airport. Well, that's one of the things that always amuses me as well, and you're somebody who does a lot of travel, but there is so much emphasis put on the the experience of travel itself, like, you know, airline travel and what have you. But um, in the end, it's just a big bus in the sky, really. Um, and the, the travel is not about the conveyance that gets you there. It's about where you're going to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, because of our sort of geographical positioning, then we often have to spend a lot of time in those big buses in the sky just to sort of get anywhere. And so I think uh, I think airline travel has a sort of a resonance in Australia that it just doesn't have in other parts of the world because, you know, when you talk to Americans and you talked about the fact that we have to 
sit on a plane for 14 or 15 hours to get there. They just can't get their heads around that because within America, you know, you can only fly four or five different hours. So um, I love it. For me, uh, heading to the airport, um, the beer that you can have at seven o'clock in the morning without <laughs> being judged, the anticipation of getting on the, on the plane and, you know, the excitement of picking your meal or what you might watch and, and then the destination. For me, that that's part of the fun. I really do enjoy that. But on the return, it's, as you said, Rob, you know, with Australians, we're travelling 14, 15 hours. It's so depressing. Just it's even, grueling, isn't it? Yeah, yes. unless you've turned left when you got on the plane and you're sitting in one of those very nice seats up the front, then when you're stuck in the, in the sort of cattle class with everyone else, then it's, yeah, it's tough. A friend of mine um, uh, took his wife to the United States for a significant anniversary number and uh, splurged out on business class seats talking about turning left. And um, so his wife, she settled in and had a very nice time and made sure she got some sleep for where they arrived. Uh, but for my friend, he said, this is probably only going to happen to me once in my life. So he stayed up all night <laughs> <laughs> ordering all the different foods. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, that is the reason that uh, airlines don't upgrade economy people. So often, you know, they've often got spare seats in business and premium economy, but they know if they upgrade uh, economy <laughs> passenger, they will be harder wearing than any business passenger will because they're going to want to try everything and eat everything and watch every movie. And so uh, the, the few odd times that I've got to travel business, it's been quite interesting because particularly on overnight flights, you'll find that all the business people, they will have dinner in the lounge beforehand and they, they get on a flight, like this is from New York to London, and they just sleep. So they, their whole point is they need to get five hours sleep so that they can hit the ground running. I was the sole light in business class for that entire trip. There was just this one spotlight coming down when I was eating, getting another Bailey's, and yes, I'll have that ice cream. And exactly. So. so tell us, Rob, about you. you. You've sorted life by the sounds of it. You do half in Australia, half in the UK and Europe? Yeah. So essentially I leave Australia around May each year. And then I do about a month of travel in the US and then I do three months in Europe and then I'll do another month in the US instead of September time and then I'll get back to uh, Australia in uh, October. And part of that is actually that issue that we talked about earlier, which is that I'm a freelance travel writer and so to get flight support is really difficult, particularly from Australia. So if I want to do a trip in Europe, then for someone to fly me there from Australia, it's very expensive, but to get me there from London with all the various cheap European airlines is much cheaper. And so it's, it's better for me to be based in Europe for that time and then I can do stories around there and then and similarly for the US. Once I'm in the US, it's easy to get around. Okay, seasonal affective disorder. Are we going to make up, what are we going to, travel return of disorder? Oh, yeah, we need an acronym. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, we need a TLA. That's right. Okay, so any any tips then on recovering from what what are we calling it? TLA. TLD. TLD. Any any tips then, Rob, from you first? I mean, there is a few. One is to try and apply that same, I guess, appreciation and curiosity to your home as you do when you travel. But I think the biggest thing, certainly the the biggest strategy for me is just acceptance. You have to accept that 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 down that you hit, that sort of, you know, coming back down the roller coaster after your trip, is just a very necessary part of travel. And that is what gives you the comparison to get excited about again when you then go and book your book your next trip. Phil, what do you do? And I've seen you seen you at work. You, you haven't convinced me that you've got any tips yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just, you know, rage around swearing and smashing things. No, I, <laughs> my wife has, uh, has the technique down pat. She, uh, she says you always have another trip that you must be looking forward to. So one of the 
first thing she does when we get back or even sometimes she arranges it whilst we're still away, she books the next one. I like that. Well, for me, one thing that I like to do is to to obviously think about the next trip but to come home and I'm a big fan of the Snapfish or Apple books, putting all your photos into something that will arrive in the post that's tangible. And that's actually a great idea because so often, particularly nowadays, you know, you go away and you take thousands of photos and then they just sit there on your laptop, on your computer, <clears throat> and you never look through them again. And so that having that process sort of forces you to go through your photos, whittle them down to the, I don't know, 30 or 40 that are really good, and then pop them in a book. So one of the, one of the pillars of what World Nomads is, is that you should share your stories, you should tell your stories as well. Now, I, I don't want to, you know, make the competition harder for you out there, but do you reckon people should have a go at writing their own travel story, even not, even not for publication, but for themselves perhaps? Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, I mean, when you travel knowing that you're going to have to write about it afterwards, you're, you're much more immersed in the destination. You're much more observant. You're much more, um, as I say, open to experiences because you think, well, I need to tell this story in two weeks' time, whether it's for a publication or it might just be for a personal blog or it might just be for an email to your family and friends. And so, you know, you're more observant. You look at the colours, you think about the sounds, you you take down those little snatches of conversation, that really, you know, interesting comment made by the taxi driver. And so I think it makes you a better traveller. There will be a link in show notes to read Rob's stories and more information on his travel writing workshops. I've participated in one. They're fantastic. Well, we have a new affiliate partner here at World Nomads, Jesse. So it's time now to find out a little more about the Baltics and what Jesse on a Journey is all about. Yeah, so when I went to college, I thought that I would do nonprofit PR. That was sort of the goal. And then when I studied abroad in lovely Australia, I decided that I just wanted to keep traveling. I became, you know, bitten by the travel bug, as they say. And then I just started doing a lot of research, trying to see what I could do in terms of a travel job. And I saw people just like me with travel blogs, which I had never heard of before. This is like 2011. And I realized like you didn't have to be, you know, Samantha Brown or some celebrity to really like write about travel. So I pursued it really aggressively. And when I started it, I really wanted to show women in particular that you didn't need to wait for someone else to travel. I usually travel by myself, even though I'm engaged now, I still usually travel by myself. We've just finished an episode on women in travel. How do you find traveling the world as a solo female? Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's very empowering. Um, you know, when you travel on your own, especially, you really realize what you're capable of. You run into even just little things like, you know, your luggage doesn't get off the plane and you have to figure out how to deal with that. And it's not a big deal. Well, you know, I actually had once in my luggage for a week. That was kind of frustrating, but it, you'll, you'll live, it'll be fine. And you figure out how to like navigate these little challenges or like I've missed a train before because I didn't realize they'd said it switched tracks because it was in like Italian. And, you know, before going on the trip, I'm like, oh, my gosh, what if I miss a train? Well, you know, I stayed an extra night in the place I was in and it was fine. And I just went, you know, onward the next day. And, you know, these things that seem so small aren't as big. I mean, that seems so big aren't as big as they actually may have seemed beforehand. Not to say I've never run into any issues like you definitely need to be aware of your surroundings and there are you know, some unique challenges I think that women face that maybe men don't as much. Can I, make sense? can I just ask you a bit of a curly question about this? Because I, I also write quite a lot of articles on the safety blog. Oh, and, okay. 
And and I do. And, you know, part of that is if you go to this destination, then, you know, attitudes towards women, especially women travelling alone, are different to what you expect at home. And, and the suggestion is that, and everybody makes it, not just me, that women have to, <laughs> women have to change their behaviour. Women have to change their behaviour in, the, in that situation. I think it's tough because it's like in an ideal world, everyone wouldn't treat, you know, everyone would do the right thing, right? Um, so it's tough. I feel like for me, it's just being aware of my surroundings and realizing that there are people who are potentially going to take advantage of me and needing to be aware of that people like I've been sexually assaulted, like in a hostel from someone who worked there. Like literally I asked for something at the front desk. And in two seconds, I was like pushed against the wall with this guy, like putting his hands up my skirt and like kissing me. And it was the craziest thing because I ran up the stairs. Um, I had actually met like someone else along the way, another guy, like another traveler. He was a guy. And I told him what happened. He went down it it did get a little physical. He, you know, stuck up for me, but the owner of the hostel was called and the, the owner asked me like 30 times if I was telling the truth. And it was like the craziest thing. Cause I'm just like, why would I make this up? And also like, they asked me so many times that I genuinely started questioning myself. Yeah. And then finally the guy admitted it and he got fired, but I was like, How could you sit there and ask me if I was telling the truth like over and over again? Ali Al, travel safety writer in the Women in Travel episode, said that they will always normally say or usually say, what did you do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, this this has ended up going... (laughs) I know. I'm sorry (laughs) about that. But I really was interested in, you know, like because I feel funny writing things like that. I just... No, no, it just, was good and great that you've shared your experience. So, look, let's. The episode is on the Baltics. Did you feel yeah. safe in Latvia? A good segue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you did feel safe. I did I? Did. And I was, um, you know, I actually. So I heard two things. Some people were like, "Oh, there's nothing to do there," which was super not true. And then, and this is just for me, Latvia. Like, I'm not. I don't know the whole region very well, but I went to Latvia specifically, and um. I didn't find that there was nothing to do. And then some of like my older family members were a little like, oh, I don't think it's safe. I feel like there's like the, the still like historical sort of like connotation that's still with them or something that like my parents think of. So they were like, oh, is it safe? Blah, blah, blah. So when I arrived, I was a little like, all right, maybe I'll stay in tonight and, you know, just stay around the hotel. And then like, the next day I actually went out and explored. I felt completely safe, like, you know, one of the safest places I've ever felt. And then I did tons of day trips out of the city because I based in Riga the whole time. And yeah, at no point did I feel unsafe. I felt like the people were nice and friendly. It was very easy to get around. So it was kind of like the perfect destination, I felt like, for a solo traveler. Well, your parents for are me, right. It, your yeah. parents are right. It does have a dark past. Very, yeah. Yeah, and, on yeah your... and I still think they think of it now. It's like, oh, is that still, you know, happening? Or Well, on your site you've got so many articles on Latvia. Um, yeah. And one included the KGB Museum. Speaking of dark past, did you like that segue? Yeah, <laughs> that one worked? That one worked. <laughs> So yeah, the museum is actually like pretty small and simple and it's wild like to think about what happened here though. So it's actually 
you know, I didn't really talk about it with that many locals, but I was told, you know, like if you, if you talk about it with some people that live there, I think they called it the corner house. People still get kind of like, you know, chills from it because, you know, it has such a, a dark, dark history. So the, when you walk through the museum, they have kind of a lot of, um, I guess you would say giant signs, but not in a boring way. Like the, the history is so um, like dark, but fascinating. So you really like I read everything. So you kind of like go through history in a timeline walking through the museum um, and you can see some portraits of people that were kept there because, you know, according to what I read, people were just taken and, and, and kept there and like their families may have not have been notified. So really, really scary history happened in this building that just seems like kind of you know, quiet and simple today. It's eerie to think about. Yeah. Is there anywhere off the beaten track outside of Riga that you can recommend? You said you did a few day trips. Oh, yeah. So in Latvia, um, I did actually, Latvia ended up being one of the quirkier trips. Um, so I booked a few tours um, and I did work with the tourism board a little bit. So I didn't know all of the logistics until the week before. Um, and I said, I love adventure travel. So they set me up with a uh, they said it was a jungle hike and a um, stand-up paddleboarding trip. I'm like, okay, <laughs> go there, find out the stand-up paddleboarding. They're pick, they're picking me up at 3 a.m. I was like, what? <laughs> I've never gone stand-up paddleboarding at 3 a.m. Um, and then the night hike started. Uh, they we met in the city center at 9 p.m. to drive to the place that started at 10 p.m. So the stand-up paddleboarding was really cool. And like smoke is coming off of the mirror lake. It's you know morning. It's very quiet. That was incredible. And then the night hike was very challenging. Um, the people who lead it are very into nature. Um, they tell you, you know, I wore shoes. I'm not going to lie. But they say, you know, you don't have to wear shoes. They don't wear shoes. Really becoming one with nature at nighttime. You can have a headlamp, but they kind of suggest you maybe you turn it off for most of the time. So you're really hiking in the complete darkness. You get to see like, um, oh, what's the movie with the glowing plants? Avatar, I think, had the, yep, the plants. Yep. Yeah, so you, those are real, apparently. And they were in the forest. And people in Latvia, what, at least what I've noticed when I was there, was they're very into nature. They know a lot about plants. So like all around us, they're like, this plant you put with this, this heals this. So uh-huh. that was really cool for me learning about the different plants. Um, and then we stopped at like 5 a.m. for a little picnic. By that point, I was like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I'm like still alive right now. <laughs> but it was really, really cool. Honestly, I was so happy I did it. And then like less intense and something you can do during the day was you can take a train to Yermala, which is the seaside. And nearby there, there's Kameri National Park, which I hiked. We'll share all the Latvian stories on show notes, but just briefly, what can people expect when they jump onto your site? So, yeah, my goal is to really show people, A, that they don't have to wait for a travel partner, but B, just from listening to especially women over the years, it's like they want to, A, travel confidently. You know, maybe there's some fears holding them back and they want to travel more. So most of my content is related to solo female travel, and also at this point, I do share a lot of information about travel blogging. I feel like more and more it is a goal of like adding more travel to your life and people are seeing more and more that it's possible. And I absolutely love that because I hope that my site is inspiring to people and empowering. 
So, yeah, that's what you can find. We've had over 100,000 listens to our podcast episodes and thrilled you like it. But if you are a new subscriber, you may not have had a chance to listen to earlier episodes, like our very first one, Croatia, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, and you can see how we've improved. In that episode, we spoke with Annie. Or not. Or not, yeah, who almost didn't travel to Croatia because the pics that she kept seeing on Instagram were all of sailing. I pictured Greece. Is what I first thought. I was like, okay, there's lots of islands and things like that. And the history really surprised me. Like the historic buildings, the town's architecture is beautiful. Like, unlike anywhere else I've been, like each, there's like small streets with like stores each side, but everything's very clean. Mountains, beautiful nature. This surprised me a lot. Like, I didn't think it would be such a historic but natural place. It's like super cool place. I was, I enjoyed it a lot. I'll make it easy and put a link to that episode in show notes. Too good. Plus, if you've enjoyed this episode on the Baltics, we'll also share some of our other world nomad stories, including the one on the bog, uh, an amazing wilderness area in Estonia. Sounds terrible, but it reads fantastic. Look, sounds like a brilliant place to go. And another reason why a nomad would love the Baltics. Well, next week we explore Malaysia. In the meantime, you can get the World Nomads podcast on iTunes or download the Google Podcast app or ask Google Home or Alexa to play the World Nomads podcast. See you later. Bye. The World Nomads podcast. Explore your boundaries.